Relationships. Is there anything that so profoundly affects our experience of life? I mean, for the positive, yes. For the negative, is there anything like relationships in which when it is negative, what we hope for and what we are experienced when they're miles apart causes disappointment, frustration, and pain? Like the marriage that isn't going the way you expected it would. The perfect children you dreamed of raising who aren't so perfect. The business partnership that once seemed ideal, now so stressful. Kids at school you thought were their friends, now they're making life difficult for you. There's so many scenarios to paint in which our experience falls short of the better relationship we had dreamed it would be. I have known the beauty of relationships that have brought me life and joy. I have known the pain of relationships that wounded and cut deeply. And I can say this, God knows the importance of relationships and how they impact us. He is a God who exists in relationship. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created us in his image to be in relationship. You might even say that the words he has given to us in the Bible are written so that relationships that we have can be so much better than what they are right now with him and with one another. Hey, I want to show you this from the Bible in the book of Ephesians today. So join me there in chapter 4 in your printed Bible, or maybe you have a Bible on your phone or tablet, or maybe you have a scroll, because this was written in the first century to a community of Christ followers in Ephesus, Turkey at that time. Hey, if you thought Christianity was all about do's and don'ts, for the first half of the letter, chapters 1 to 3, Paul does not ask the Ephesian believers to do anything. What he does is outline to them all the things that God has done for them in Christ. He shows them the profound impact that has on their identity, their past, their present, and their future. It is breathtaking. It's like going to the Grand Canyon and getting this panoramic view of the salvation of God. The point Paul is making, with God, our relationship starts and continues, not so much in what we can do for him, but what he has done for us. It is totally lopsided, extravagant, abundant, overflowing grace from God. Then falls a turning point. In the letter, as Paul writes to, the, to them in Ephesians, in chapter 4, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The gracious, glorious salvation God has worked for us in Christ, Paul refers to as our calling. And now, having seen the immense picture of that calling, he starts to tell us what to do. Like, respond to this. I mean, you can't be unmoved by this great salvation, can you? This last Easter, did you get a glimpse of the price Jesus paid to rescue you? The Grand Canyon takes your breath away. How can we not let the salvation of God do the same and more? And then it's only natural and right that we live differently in response to live in a manner worthy, as Paul says. And what does that look like? What would you expect Paul to talk about as the way to respond rightly to God's glorious grace and gifts to you? Do some mighty act of faith, leave your home and go to a foreign country? No. Paul talks about relationships. I therefore, as prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Relationships. One of the reasons we strongly encourage people to be a part of a local church, and within that, part of a smaller community group, 
is that it is one of the primary ways we walk worthy of our gracious, glorious calling to be in community and in that community relate to one another God's way. And here's the rub. This is not necessarily easy. You know that, don't you? That's why we have the gaps between what we hope for and what we experience in relationships. That's why we have people who are turned off to the church, why we have the hurt and the offended. In Paul's realism, he tells us responding rightly in relationship is going to take work. He says it will require patience. That literally means to suffer long. That's being honest. It will require bearing with one another, to plant your side beside someone and stick to it. Stick to that relationship as you stick there. It will require humility and gentleness. That's going to be needed for better relationships because people can be prickly. And so can you. And so can I. But better relationships is still what God is after for our good. To respond rightly to God has very much to do with how I respond to you. Parents get this. You love each of your children. And you also know it is for their good that they are kind and caring and sharing to one another. Life will go so much better for the whole family if the kids cooperate with one another. But it doesn't always happen. I have the best grandchildren. Most times they are tender-hearted, sweet, thoughtful. But every once in a while when they're playing with their siblings or cousins or other little kids and someone is infringing on their stuff, I see this selfishness like a gritting out of the teeth and a follow-up act of aggression. <laughs> no, 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 I want to tell them, share the ball. I find it humorous and of course I suppress my smile, but where did that come from? I thought grandchildren were perfect. No, even in their cuteness. We're all fallen, aren't we? And because their parents love their kids, there will be a long school of life education reinforcing that life goes better for them and everyone. When we think not only of ourselves, but others too. This is the perspective of God our Father, wanting the best for all of us, wanting the best for you. God knows that you and I can never become what God intends for us on our own individually. Like an Olympic athlete could never win a gold in a sport by training and relying on just one part of the body, you know, great legs, <laughs> flabby stomach, no, it'll take the whole body. And that's sometimes how Paul refers to the church. Each one of us working together in order for us to get to God's goal for our lives. God is a relational being. You are created in his image, a relational being. So that walking worthy of your call on God happens with others. And part of our calling is to be a contributor to an environment of committed Christian relationships. Paul goes on from here to emphasize both our unity and diversity. As God is one, so are we to be united. But in that unity, God has given diversity as he gifts us with leaders like apostles, prophets, evangelists, pa evangelists, pastors, teachers. And each one of us is gifted to be a contributing member with unique spiritual gifts. So important for us to contribute in that way. And in that environment, there is both a goal and a practice that is common to all. And we're going to look at that today. The goal, maturity in Christ. The practice, speaking truth in love. Ephesians 4 verse 13 says this, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The goal. It's important to align ourselves with God's direction for our lives. My brother was on a trip once to Palm Springs with his in-laws and uh, they chose to drive there and they drove through the night and his turn came deep into the night. I think it was somewhere around Fresno. No one on the road, everyone is sleeping. He was making good time. A while later though, someone woke up and brought to his attention they were going the wrong way. He had turned west. Palm Springs was east, the opposite direction. I think it was like a four-hour gaff and a very unhappy family. Imagine living your whole life headed in the wrong direction. Oh, you're moving, you're busy, but are you headed in God's direction? I think this is an important question to ask ourselves on a regular basis. So you may be listening or watching today and you're a person who doesn't know Jesus in personal relationship, but you may actually be headed towards Jesus as you are inquiring, you're wanting to know, you're moving closer. A person who has professed Jesus may actually be moving in a direction away from Jesus. Oh, they've said a prayer at some point and maybe you've had experiences with God, but right now your movement is away. You're not listening, you're ignoring, you're pointing away from him. According to Paul, our direction should always be towards this, maturity in Christ. That is, our goal is to know Jesus and think and act like Jesus. Again, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As Paul said, we are growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I don't, I don't know that I wake up fired up for this every day. I mean, does this sound like your day, your mindset? I've got to remind myself the goal is not success. It's not comfort, status, the, the good life. These may be appealing destinations, but they're off the mark. The goal is maturity, described as the fullness in Christ. The fullness of Christ, his life, his mind, his power, his love, I mean, that's awesome. And in Christ, we find that all of our other legitimate needs are somehow met because Jesus is the source of life and all that is good. He is the amazing worthy goal. And inherent in that is progress, movement, and, and growth, the reality that we haven't arrived and that we journey together. The goal is not just for myself. It's too big for just myself. It is for us together in community too. The goal Christ. Oh man. I mean, that's Everest-like, high and lofty. And that's altitude we can never climb to by ourselves. We will need one another to get there. I need your spiritual gift and you need mine working together in its diversity. But within that common to all, the practice that we should all be doing is speaking the truth in love. The goal, maturity in Christ, the practice speaking truth in love. In John chapter eight, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth 
will set you free. He says earlier in John chapter six, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Hey, the words Jesus speaks are life, they're spirit and adhered to. They bring us into this true liberty because they are true. But they are words that are often challenged. Christianity is lived out amongst other opposing mindsets and worldviews, and they clamor for our affection, our attention, and belief. So we need to affirm to one another the truth, lest opposing views wreck us, as Paul says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There are winds of doctrine. Paul says, teaching that is cunning and crafty. And if we don't grow up in our faith, we'll be tossed around like children in a little boat on a stormy lake. Did you know you're being taught every day? You, you don't have to be a student in school to be taught. The messages and symbols of our society, coupled with social pressure, literally school us every day, and they affect us. We live now in an environment where even the idea of an overriding truth itself is highly suspect. And yet, the Bible unequivocally proclaims there is truth to be known, truth to be believed, truth to, to be lived and spoken. And as we have seen here in God's word, this is necessary for us to get to God's goal of maturity. Hey, there's a place for us in our humanity to struggle with the teachings of Jesus. Some of the things Jesus said are hard. And for many people, for example, like Sean McDowell and Alyssa Childers, the struggle has led to a stronger faith so that they are now current apologists you can follow on YouTube. But, but for others, it has led to a significant deconstruction and a faith-labeled progressive Christianity that looks little like the orthodoxy of Christianity held to for thousands of years. Do you know how so many people get there? Because in a time of genuine doubt, other Christians gave them truth but no love. It became all about having the right belief and then shaming them if that person still struggled. So tragically, the pendulum swings to love as a person understands it while rejecting truth. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. Those are the words of John Stott in his message of Ephesians. So let me define truth as whatever God says. God's truth is his revealed will to us, given to us in his scripture. And love? Well, don't let the latest pop charts define it for you. Let the truth of God's word define it for you, as it does so beautifully in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believe all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's love. And no matter how many times I hear those words, they strike me as so beautiful and today so counter-cultural. Love like that, modeled in Jesus, giving his life away for you and me so that loving, that he doesn't, and so loving that he doesn't hold to the, back from the truth, but proclaims truth to us. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Saying things like, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Speaking the truth in love is a powerful combination that leads to life because it leads us into Christ. 
Now, when I used to hear this phrase, my thinking for years was that this meant some kind of rebuke. That's why it had to be couched in love. But I don't know why I'd limited it that way. I mean, did Paul intend the church to go about always and only speaking hard truths to one another? Like, excuse me, brother, I've been meaning to tell you, but I don't want to, but love's compelling me, and then correct that person. What about encouragement? See, if if the way we live our lives is to be based on God's truth, what we speak, our advice, our truth, should come from Scripture for every situation in life. To challenge, yes, but also to strengthen and to build up because that is what scripture does. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's maturity through the power of God's word. So speak that in love and and watch what happens in your community. Now, I don't, I don't think Scripture is advocating that we walk around like robots and we only speak to one another, quoting Bible verses to one another in mechanical fashion. I think God's intention is for His truth to become so ingrained in us that it oozes from us naturally and appropriately. There's no magical quick formula to this. The deeper my relationship with Jesus, the more I know His Word, the better I will be at this process. Colossians 3 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I was speaking with a friend of mine recently and he was telling me how someone had asked him, how did you come to know the scripture so well? Like, what Bible college did you go to? Where did you study? He hadn't done any of that. Not that that isn't a good thing to do. It's just that his everyday practice has been to read the Bible. And every year he reads it over from cover to cover with a heart to do what it says, so that now it just dwells in him richly and he is able to speak the truth appropriately and powerfully. Jen Wilkin, who has written a book I'd highly recommend, both for women and men, a book entitled Women of the Word, says that we need to have patience when it comes to reading God's Word. Gaining biblical literacy, she says, requires allowing our study to have a cumulative effect across weeks, months, years, so that the interrelation of one part of Scripture to another reveals itself slowly and gracefully. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Like any practice, we can grow in it over time. And now using Scripture, I just want to illustrate a simple way as to how we speak the truth in love. We do that by connecting the what to the why. In our call to worship today, we heard from Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17, and it was read in a way that models exactly what I'm talking about. We were encouraged to do a lot of things, the what, but each one of those was purposely linked to the why. For example, the what. You must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why? Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves. We saw that the what of make allowance for each other's faults and forgive one another who offends you. Or above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds all us together in perfect harmony. Why? Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves. Speaking the truth in love, connect the what to the why. This is a consistent practice of Paul. I'm going to read to you Colossians 3 verses 1 to 6 and then show you again how this works. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, wrath of God is coming. So we look at verse 1. The what there is seek the things that are above, but it's sandwiched between two whys. Why? Because you've been raised with Christ, and that is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In verses 2 to 4, the what is set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because you have died. When did that happen? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what happened to him? It's like it happened to you. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verses 5 and 6, the what is, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And Paul lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. What is the why? Because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these words, Paul has recounted different parts of the story of God. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, his return, Jesus' coming judgment as powerful reasons, the why for what we do, what we do. Speaking the truth in love, connect the what to the why. In this way, we can address cultural issues as well. For example, the issue of social justice has created tension, and especially in the United States, it's divided churches. And any Christ follower should be absolutely against racism and for social justice. Social justice. But it should be a social justice that is based on biblical truth. Thaddeus Williams, Williams has written a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And he talks about that there are actually two kinds of justice that, that are being uh, conversed about. One is social justice B, which he refers to as bad, and the other is social justice A, which he refers to as awesome. Both of them are against racism, but how they, how they view racism is considerably different. In social justice B, the root problem is oppression, and the identity of people is based on their race and power. Their goal is equity, and there's constant partiality. It's always going to be us against them. In social justice A, the biblical view, the root is the problem of sin. And the identity of everyone involved is as image bearers of God, and the goal is Christ where there is no partiality, there's no Jew or Gentile, all are equal in and before Christ. Speaking the truth in love, connect the what to the why. We can do that with cultural issues and most certainly with personal issues. I had a friend of mine who shared with me great concern about one of his kids um, in middle school, great kid, fun, loving, respectful, except for this one thing. There is this, this issue of, of sin, of, of lying, and I mean, right to mom and dad's face. Can you imagine how hurtful it would be to have your son who you think you're in a really good relationship with and you find out that they've been lying like directly to your face and, and when found out, sure, there's remorse and regret and tears and you think it would all change from there, but it would happen again and again, so painful, so hurtful. My friend and I prayed together and an idea emerged. I mean, he had great relationships with all of his kids and so he suggested to this uh, middle schooler that they, they look at the scriptures together on the subject of lying. And this was a way to speak the truth in love to his child. And it was welcomed. 
And over the course of weeks, as they'd spend time together looking at what the Bible had to say about lying, and, and some of that came out of principles, such as in the book of Proverbs, some of it came out of stories. I don't know if they read Ananias and Sapphira. Um, that would be a good one, people falling over, dead for lying. But, and, and some of, it, of the scripture would take, deep, take them deeper than the presenting problem, underlying issues of identity and self-worth. And we always need to hear what God says over us in his truth. And guess what happened? Amazing transformation. The power of love, the power of truth, and the power of doing that in community. You need me. I need you to, to, to speak the truth to one another in love. In love, in, in times when I'm discouraged and maybe down on myself, I need you to encourage me by speaking God's truth about my identity in Christ. When circumstances are difficult and, and I'm weary in love, I need you to remind me of the stories of God's faithfulness. When I'm saddened by my failure to lead well enough in love, I need you to speak over me God's truth that my acceptance is not based on my performance, but on God's love for me. When I'm tired of leading and fighting against opinions that are contrary to Christ, in love, I need you to speak the confidence of the truth of the unshakable victory that Christ has won for all of us. You need me, I need you to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us, walking together, operating in our spiritual gifts, moving towards the goal of the fullness of Christ as we speak the truth in love to each other. Hey, before we respond in, in worship, I just wanna take the time to pray with you. And, and I, I just invite you to, to just open your heart up and as I pray for us, that we would receive God's love and then respond to it in a way in which we're not just looking after ourselves, but looking after one another, intentionally caring for one another, growing together to be and think like Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, today we are just overwhelmed by the, the glorious grace that you have given to us in Christ Jesus, that he would die for us, that he would rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father so that we could be taken from death to life, our sins forgiven, our, our slates wiped clean, given a new life, given a hope of, of an eternity with you and given your Holy Spirit to empower us to, to live before you. And today, God, we wanna say thank you. We worship you for your great grace and love towards us. And God, if we haven't responded well in the past, we just we just ask you to forgive us. And, and I pray today for a, a new empowerment by your Holy Spirit to enable us to walk worthy of this glorious calling that you've given to us. And may it begin, Lord, in the way that we love you in, in worship, but also in the way that we love one another. God, I pray that you would help us to find ourselves in committed community where we speak truth to one another, where we give of, this, of the gifts that you've given to us to serve one another to spur one another on to love and good deeds and to grow into the fullness of Christ that you want us to experience. I ask this because I know this is what you want for us in the mighty, precious name of Jesus, amen.